Amen to that. Thank you, Mike, and all the worship team, and everybody here that works so hard, praying together, sharing together, serving together. Um, yesterday, the food drop was part of that process, so thank you to all that you serve continually and, and uh, help with that. A big thanks to Doug and his team. And If you need some food and things, there's always leftovers. If you're new to us, just go down that hallway that way. Take stuff, please. Um, that's what it's for. So I just appreciate everybody that uh, serves and, and does just a wonderful job loving Christ in those areas. So uh, Mark chapter 8. We're cruising right along um, a little faster than what we have been. Mark chapter 8, verse 22 is where we're going to continue. This section begins this division that we talked about of Jesus' ministry. He's going from a public ministry to a private ministry. Uh, so there's this big... Uh, transition and what he's doing as he's going through the countryside because uh, he has a job to do we just sang about that the job is the cross that's where he's headed to and so we come to this text and it's kind of innocuous it's just kind of there and you're like oh here's another one and here's what it says in verse 22 and they came to Bethsaida some people brought to him a blind man and he begged him to touch him and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, it's kind of gross, he laid his hands on him. Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, saying, do not even enter the village. Kind of a, just a pretty basic story, right? Here's another one of Jesus' deals doing his thing. And I just want to point out that's true unless you forget the context of where we've been and where this is going. What Jesus has been talking about. Jesus is leaving. That's the plan. He's leaving those who would not believe. Last time he's leaving the Pharisees, he's leaving the Jewish leaders, he's, he's not preaching anymore. He is going to be sharing pretty much with his disciples. And Jesus has been back and forth in this area numerous times. So it's not new. He's had multiple interactions just like this. If you go to John chapter 10, verse 37, if I'm doing this is what he says, He's talking to those very same Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, that he's now abandoning because of their unbelief, this willful unbelief. <clears throat> he says this, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me, but if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works, <clears throat> that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That's what he's after, but their time has run out. And I'll just share this again. One of the most spiritually dangerous things is to hear and be exposed to the truth over and over and over again in God's word and not respond in faith. It leads to a hard, calloused, self-righteous heart. Better to not hear it at all than sit under a biblical teaching and do nothing with it and love your sin. That's Isaiah chapter 6. They keep on hearing, but do not understand. They keep on seeing, but they don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, 
blind their eyes, and he goes on and on. But please notice in verse 22 from our text, there are always what? There's always some people, right? There is always a remnant. There is always a people that God is drawing to himself. All through Scripture you see this. All through the Old Testament you see it with Noah. Eight people. Out of however many people there were before the flood came. Eight. Elijah. I'm the only one left, God. Just, I'm done. Just take me. Which he does, by the way, if you read the story, but not in the way he was probably thinking. God says, yeah, um, no, there's at least 7,000 that still haven't bent the knee to Baal. They still have, they're, they're still worshiping me. And if there's a remnant, <clears throat> by implication, it means there's not one, correct? Hell and judgment is hard, but a true doctrine for us as human beings to wrestle with. But God is doing a work, right? He is doing a separating. He is harvesting. He is calling a people to himself all throughout the world, all throughout history. But not everyone hears and not everyone sees. Jesus even mentioned this, Bethsaida, you remember that? He's been here numerous times. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles were performed in you, if they'd been, if I did those, if I did those to Tyre and Sidon. So if you remember, Gentile cities, Gentile people, so he's making this huge contrast to them that we kind of kind of go over really quick. Well, the Jewish people are God's people, right? We're in. He's like, yeah, no, I don't think so. If I'd have done these there, they would have repented. That's judgment is what he's after. The city that Peter, Andrew, and Philip grew up in, were born in, he says, will you be exalted to heaven? Of course, again, they think they are because, well, we're God's people. It doesn't matter what we do or how we live. You will be brought down to hell, is what he says. And Jesus sums it up using Sodom to be in that city. In other words, it would be better, it's going to be better for Sodom. Again, he's making this contrast. Better for them than for you, because you heard the truth, and they didn't. And so he's leaving those who believe, he's leaving them to judgment. Even if they don't hear and see fully, the disciples yet need to be prepared for something that, of his leaving. They still don't quite get it. So let me just share this. The disciples are learning some valuable lessons on this journey. Jesus has been through this trip through the whole countryside. So here's just a handful, just by way of reminder, of the lessons that they learned that you and I, I believe, still need to learn. Man, that's hard to read, isn't it? <laughs> Number one is you don't seek after a sign. You don't want Jesus to run on his dog and pony show constantly for you. He's done everything he needs to do at the cross, in other words. That's the lesson. To live faith by his word is the lesson. You trust Jesus to meet your, your needs. Don't worry. Don't be fearful. Don't be anxious. That's Luke chapter 12. It's the God who gives you the power to gain wealth, to work and do all of those things. Deuteronomy 8. For you to provide for yourself, for your family. Avoid the leaven of the, the false teaching of, of doctrine of, of the Pharisees. Remember that was a week or so ago, the, of, of the Herodians, the politics, all the things that, hey, we've got the solution. Nope, nope, if it doesn't bear in mind the cross, it's not a solution. It is a falsehood. Leave the leaven alone. Leave the false teaching. Confront it. 
And then finally, let the work of Jesus do as, as he wills and expect a variety. He doesn't do the same thing every time as from our text. It's interesting, you know, when you think about diseases, we're, we're dealing with a blind man. In history, it's been really rather recent history where you and I could have the medical things happen to us to make our lives better, longer, and all those things. It really wasn't until the 19th century before there's, you see these huge leap in medicine. This was a state of affairs of what you had to deal with. And the, the concoctions and the, and the ways in which people tried to cure diseases, where you go back and read some of those would be just totally bizarre to you now because they just didn't know. Humorous, truly, some of them. There was no cure for blindness. And according to everyone that you can uh, look at, I'll just give you one of those. It's just, I thought this was interesting. One of those uh, medical remedies for blindness. A rooster's blood mixed with honey smeared on your eyes. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's worse than spitting or not. I don't know. <laughs> right? <laughs> but that's the contrast here. Birth defects, you know, disease, lack of sanitation, the infections, you know, accidents, all those things, there was no cure like we understand that today. And they all contributed to people being blind. And Jesus responds in the most interesting way. Here's another contrast. When Jesus, by and large, most of his miracles, what did Jesus do? He's touching people. Why is that such a big, hairy deal? Because if you are blind, if you are broken or whatever, if you remain, you're unclean. You're one of the outcasts. You're not the desirables. So what do the Pharisees do? They don't touch anybody, right? Jesus is always in his mercy, in his care. He is always touching. You read in John 9, the leaders of Israel come to him. They discredit him in every way possible, if you remember, in John chapter 9, and the testimony that they were giving uh, when they said, you know, who healed the blind man there, who, or the crippled man, who healed you, you know? Who is this Jesus? He says, I don't know who he is, but I know I used to be blind, but now I can see. I used to be crippled, but now I, now I have full access to my hands. It was this immediate healing all the time. I don't know who he is, but he did this. See, something else that this idea Jesus keeps touching because the religious at the time that they, they wouldn't. You're, again, you just read Job if you can work through the middle section. It's pretty rough, but that was the deal. What happened to you? Oh, you must have sinned. God is cursing you. Something has happened to you. You're not right. And Jesus, in that case, in the book of Job, get to the end of the chapter, end of the book in verse 40, and God has his way with him. Yeah, you're misrepresenting me because that's not who I am, basically is what he's saying. You have to understand that they were untouchable people and the religious establishment wouldn't touch them. That's why this is a big deal. But in the midst of this is something rather interesting in that it took Jesus twice to heal this guy. You ever wonder why? Again, I remember in at Great Lakes, you know, this was a big debate. You know, is something wrong with Jesus? Did he miss breakfast or something? Lost the power just for a split? I mean, what's going on? Of course, obviously, none of that's true, but all these claims about, oh, 
again, just to discredit who he is because it took him twice. Okay, then you have to ask why. Well, again, if you understand where this is, this is the separation of what God is doing. He's going from public to private. He's just had this confrontation with the Pharisees, the disciples, in, in the same way of not seeing, not hearing. There is far more to this, and it's very important, I believe, to understand why this is. The disciples, like the blind man, had been touched by Jesus, had they not? How so? They've been with him for two years now. Two years, day and night, walking, talking, sleeping, doing life together, learning from him. Receiving the blessing of being with him. But their spiritual insight was far from complete, right? Remember before? Hey, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and they're worried about lunch in the boat, right? They, he's right there, and they still don't get it. They need a second touch, if you will, for complete understanding. So for the rest of our time, I want to give you three places every Christian needs to look. Where you need to look to understand. And the first one comes from, again, I'm just pulling from our text. After, at the beginning, he took the blind man and led him out of the village. When he'd spin on his eyes, do you see anything? So verse 24, and he looked up. You have to look up. Where does my help come from? The Psalms that was read, Psalms 121. Where is it coming from? My help is from the Lord. If you look at that, Psalms 121. Four times he says, the Lord is. My help comes from the Lord. The Lord is your keeper. He is, and will, the Lord will keep you. The Lord will keep you. The Lord will keep you. But you got to look, and you have to look up. And if you're not looking up, where are you looking? Well, typically you're looking down and around. In essence, you're looking at the world. You're looking at everything that's happening here, everything that's measured here, the right and wrong and the morality of here. We don't use the world standard to measure any of those things. And that's the current conflict you and I. It's always been the conflict. But we are in present in that conflict. We don't look to the world for what marriage is. We don't look to the world for what men and women are. We don't look for redefinitions of those things. They have already been defined by the creator of the universe. You have to look up. You can't save yourself. You need a savior. And yet the world continues to look in darkness all around, in all kinds of places. All kinds of solutions for all the problems that you see in the world. But the only place we don't look, or the world doesn't look, is at the heart. You need a savior. You need to trust Jesus to meet your needs. Again, to not be fearful, to not be anxious, to not worry. To be reminded that work is an honorable thing. It is a good thing what you're going to do tomorrow. Well, maybe not you. You don't maybe not like what you're doing tomorrow. I don't know. <laughs> but at least in this country, guess what? You have the freedom to go find another job <laughs> if you so desire, right? Work is an honorable thing. How do I know that? Well, because it came before the fall. Work is a good thing, and it's God who gives you the means in which to provide 
and gain wealth. Again, Deuteronomy 8. But never let that get in the place when you look this way, instead of looking up from where all of those blessings come from. Don't become like King Nebuchadnezzar, who looked down and around instead of up. Looks around and says, Isn't this Babylon, this great nation, this great city? Look at what I've done. I've built this city and kingdom by my might and power as a royal residence and the glory of my majesties. There's a lot of I's and me's and my's in his definition of himself. And he was warned a year earlier by Daniel that this was going to happen. And when he got there, he was cast out by God. You've exalted yourself. Just a side note, to this very day, if you go to the old city about the walls and all that stuff, it's all kind of crumbled, but you can see the actual walls of his kingdom. And on the inside of those walls, totally desolate. Critters, jackals, all kinds of critters are there, living there. Outside the walls, there's all kinds of things growing up around it, cities and that kind of stuff. But inside, just like God said, it would never be restored. It would never come back. Another side note as well, if you've heard lately of people who identify as animals, well, Nebuchadnezzar's beat you to it, and you just have to read Daniel 4. See, nothing's new under the sun. (laughs) What's the point? Listen, you may be under the hand of Christ, but yet have an imperfect view of spiritual things. You can be a Christian and not have this full picture. See, the blind man experienced the power of God's grace, yet he couldn't distinguish men from trees. There was this incomprehension that was happening in his life. He could see, and he could see something, but it wasn't completely in focus quite yet. And there are many who hope in Christ, but are still yet darkened to some extent. They have distinct, different views of who they are and who Christ truly is. Meaning they know very little of their own depravity or the exaltedness and holiness of Christ or maybe the nature of spiritual warfare or dealing with your own set of expectations of what who God is and what He is like instead of letting God tell you what He is like and what He expects. Maybe if that's you, Hey, I hear there's a class starting next Sunday morning. You might want to attend that. John's going to be covering some of that. See, the apostles didn't themselves see, understand the the necessity of where Christ was going. He was going to the cross, and they didn't get it yet. They didn't understand the spiritual nature of the kingdom. How do I know? Well, I peeked ahead a little bit where we're going, right? And... Peter has this confrontation with Jesus because he flat out says, I'm going to do this. And what does Peter say? Oh, no, you're not. (laughs) You're not going to die. Really? And boy, does Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, oh, man, lays into Peter. What does he call him? Hey, Satan, get behind me. (laughs) Weren't too many questions after that. Even after his resurrection, they couldn't conceive completely what was happening and to what ends he had risen. Even after Pentecost, their understanding and and what had happened to work out of them, the Mosaic Law and everything they grew up with had to be worked out of them so they understood the true nature 
and God's purposes of grace and mercy, and that it was going to the Gentiles. And there may be many here, and maybe someone that you know, who are dear to Christ, but still have some veil misunderstanding on their heart. Listen, it doesn't mean you undervalue or degrade in some way a new believer. Look at, look at, every one of you in here, if you're a Christian, where did you start? How does Scripture define where you started? As a little baby, right? Everybody starts there. Everyone does. So they have value. What did Jesus say? Let the what? Let the little children come to me. The kingdom of heaven is made up of these. You only need a little faith, like a mustard seed. Listen, if God doesn't despise the small things such as a child, should you or I? If our brother still a babe in Christ, what should we do? You feed him milk. Or if he's grown a little bit, like a lamb, to use another illustration, as Jesus does, you carry him. You carry him where he needs to go. There are many new Christians in Christ and many, I'll say, lambs in God's divine economy that stand higher in his estimation than those who think they're all that in a bag of chips. Just look at Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if there's an unwillingness to fear the Lord, that's another question and another issue altogether. But that leads us to number two. If you're looking up, you have to look through. To see clearly in there, verse 25. What's fascinating to me is, and I didn't understand this at all until, again, I, don't, I can't read or speak Greek. I can read it, but I just mess it up royally when I try to say it. <laughs> but I can understand the definitions and that kind of thing. Mark uses every word available to him in this one verse to talk about seeing, sight, and clarity. It is interesting to me. It's, it's as if there's, he's, he's trying to make the point there's a sight from every perspective possible that you can imagine. He uses two words for eyes when he spit in his eyes. When he lays his hands on his eyes, they're different words. The first one is ometa. The second word is ophthamos. They mean similar things. But the second one has this context of not just seeing, but also understanding. Something more in depth. And then once Jesus actually heals the man, the second half of this, when he says he opened his, opened his eyes, or if you have a, I don't know, an NIV or New American saying, he looked intently. That's how it's translated there. It's an entirely different word. And it literally means to see through, to penetrate. Think Superman eyes. You can see through things. That's the intent. There's this clarity that you now understand you see accurately would be another way to, to understand that see if you're not looking through things clearly you have this tendency then to look inward listen it's never a question of worship worship is never the question it's just who are you worshiping everybody is worshiping something or someone and in our present culture paganism is flourishing at a rapid rate there's a whole lot of navel gazing if you will in our secular society. And I just want to point that out. Second Timothy chapter 3. Here's what's happening. And here's what's happened. When you don't see clearly. 
when you don't have God's light in you to see things as they are, the reality of what's happening, God's reality. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, but understand this. There it is. See clearly. Have this perspective. Understand this. That's the whole idea. See through it. See through all the smoke and mirrors of all the, everybody postulating this idea, that idea. See clearly. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. No surprise there. People will be what? Lovers of themselves. Interesting that that's the first one, because that's exactly where we are. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, and so on. And he just goes on and on. That's a pagan culture. That's a people that looks inward instead of looking clear through in their understanding. It's interesting, again, for Jesus to do this, that he could heal blindness in an instant. In fact, he doesn't even have to touch anybody. There's a couple instances in Scripture where he just says, go, your faith has made them well, right? He doesn't have to be in the vicinity, and he can heal. But he chose to do this. If it hadn't pleased him, again, he could have healed him without touching this man at all. He could have cured him instantly. He could have cured him the very first time. But he saw fit to do it this way. And so here's the understanding that you and I need to see clearly to see through. In the same way, Jesus could instantly enlighten your mind in every spiritual truth imaginable. You wouldn't necessarily, from the moment you're in Christ, you're not a baby, you're just instantly mature, right? But he doesn't do that. That's not the process. He could easily shine the light of his goodness and greatness to fulfill our lives in such a way. But he doesn't. In fact, he didn't even do that in creation, did he? Could have done it there. Wham! And then here we are. But what did he do? It took six days. Why? Well, we're still using the calendar. It's really for our benefit. For us to see his glory. For us to see his magnificence. It's, it's all about God being the center of things. It's for you and your testimony, for me and my testimony. Go, hey, remember where I was before Christ? Do you remember those days? You're like, oh, I don't want to remember those days. (laughs) And where God is taking you from there to where he is taking you now, who gets the credit? Better be God. It better be him. Because, again, then you're no different than Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, look what I do. Look how good I am. Look at all the moral things I got. And we have this list of things that somehow we think, oh, God's going to be good with me because look at all the good things I'm doing. And we flip this upside down constantly. The good things I'm doing transfer from when I became a Christian to God. Before that, was all about me. Look how good I am making a name for myself just like Nebuchadnezzar because he looks inward. Doesn't see it clearly. Therefore, a new creation of the soul, our souls, he gradually informs us and renews us. The Bible calls that sanctification. If you are in Christ, know this is happening to you, for you, for God's glory and your benefit. That he is taking you from a brand new creature in Christ, renewed of the heart, renewed of the mind, and growing you to maturity. Where are you supposed to get to? Maturity. I think we get this kind of confused. Does that mean 
not till I get to heaven? No! Could you imagine, you know, your, your kids when they're at graduation and, you know, how long do you want them to, to kind of hang out at your house? <laughs> I know some of you are like, come on, <laughs> you got to go do life, right? You can be a mature Christian in this life. That's his expectation, that you grow up in maturity in Christ. We're not sitting around waiting for him to come back again, and then I'll be mature. That's not the idea. And he does it in this really strange way, the preaching and teaching of the gospel to open up blind eyes. Inadequate as though those means may be, he has appointed them to that end. The preaching and teaching of the word of God to transform lives. Why? Because, again, it's all about the work he's doing through the word. He ordered all those means to be continued as long as time remains and as long as the smallest imperfection and immaturity in my life is there, that I can go and understand the word and move out of that. Why? Because it's going to glorify him. What happens when you see clearly, when you see through? You see who you are exactly. You get to see the maturity. You get to see the work that God is doing in your life. You get to look back and go, man, I can start connecting the dots. I wish I could do it forward, right? Man, I wish I could see how this is all going to turn out, but I don't get that. What I get is to trust him and his promises that he'll never leave me, forsake me. All the things in Psalms 121, but I can look back and go, oh, he was faithful there, 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 and there. Okay, take a deep breath. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Don't be fearful. Why? Because he's going to continue the process. Right? Oh, my goodness. The perfect work the Holy Spirit is working on imperfect people. And you and I must have some consolation and some rest in this to consider a couple things. Here's one. He is jealous for his own people. Do you know that? That he loves you that much? He is jealous for you? I mean, that's even a worship song I think we sing. Even if we have come to Christ and he has opened our eyes to the measure in which we're here this morning. He has given us some spiritual discernment. So you have to ask yourself a few, question, a few questions. What do I see now that the flesh and blood, meaning my physical uh, nature, could never have revealed to you? What can it do? do I, in other words, do I desire the knowledge of my own heart? Or do I not acknowledge and desire the knowledge of God more deeply? Another, again, just another example. Do I ask, like David, is this your prayer? Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. Does that make sense? Do I seek Christ to be more, to have him more enlarged in my life, or am I like Nebuchadnezzar making a name for my own self? Do I treasure Christ and want him in my life to make much of him? Or is it all about me? Listen, we must grow, beloved, in the grace and knowledge of the understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if, please listen, please hear me in my heart. If, when for a season in your life or of time, you've been taught in Christ and should be teaching others maybe, but yet still need to be taught the basics and first principles of the Word of God and the principles of who He is and the oracles of God, as Paul puts it. 
then we should have reason to fear and should ask the next question. Have the scales of the darkness truly fallen from my eyes? Am I looking inward? In other words, am I truly saved or not? Am I counting on my own righteousness or is the veil of darkness still over my heart? We need to look through, we need to see see clearly, and here's the third look, to look and hope. If you're looking up and looking through life clearly, then you can look and hope, and not like the world hopes. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. There to see clearly, get rid of all the sin that so easily entangles, which he's going to say, and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, listen, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You're not founding your faith, and you're not protecting it. It is being done to you and for you to bless you for God's glory. It shows up in all those wonderful people showing up yesterday to pass out food for people that are needing help. It shows up in a thousand and one different ways as Christian people serve and love. It shows up for me being a husband to my wife, loving her like Christ loved the church. All of those means what you see in Scripture. That's how it shows up. All for the glory of God. See, wherever God has begun the good work of faith, there is reason to hope that he will carry it on to perfection. Because I can look back and go, see what he did there, there, there. And I don't get it all, but he's, he's weaving. And man, I went way over there. I can't believe how far off the road. Man, I was just, that sin, that thing took me so far off, and yet he's brought me back. Because he's jealous for you. Because he cares for you. Because he is finishing a work in you. Listen, never did Jesus leave one of his miracles imperfectedly completed, which is an oxymoron, right? (laughs) If it's complete, it's perfect. If it's incomplete, it's not perfect. That doesn't even make any sense. But in our text, like in creation, he presented this perfected cure, the means in which he did this, as an example to how our spiritual lives are working. And in the end, it was very good, just like creation. You really can't say really, at uh, least in my knowledge, much of that to any of the people that claim of faith healing and all the miracle workers that claim that they can do those things in our day. Therefore, with faith and hope in hand, we can hope he will do the same thing for you and I. But, here's an example. Remember Balaam in the Old Testament? He was a prophet. He was illuminated. He could see He had knowledge, but not the truth. He wasn't sanctified. We may just expect the same punishment that he got or Bethsaida received. But if you and I walk according to the light, we have him. The light will surely be increasing as we go in our lives and all the saving blessings that come with it that God wants to bestow upon you. See, the Christian path, the Christian life can be compared to the sun rising to its highest height. There's no reason for doubt because Christ is perfecting you. Now, when you're in it, does it feel like he's perfecting you? Man, I wish you'd just get me out of this quick, right? Okay, let's be honest. That's how I feel sometimes. Then I have to ask myself, okay, why am I here? (laughs) 
Even in those places, he is perfecting us. There is no reason for doubt. Paul expressed his confidence that he would complete a good work wherever he began. That's Philippians 1 when he was writing there. He who began a good work, do you remember that one? He'll bring it to completion. When does he say, by the way? If you go to, I think it's Philippians first chapter 1, verse 6, 5, 6, somewhere's in there. At the very beginning. When does that completion process take place? At the day of Christ, his return. That's when it's fully complete. Paul didn't even get his prayer answered in an affirming way, whatever physical ailment he was dealing with. Prayed three times for God to take it away. What did Jesus say? Yeah, I'm going to let that one hang out on the other, buddy. Right? He didn't say it like that, but you know. My grace is sufficient for you. That's all you need. Boy, that's, that's tough, isn't it? To live out. See, we too may be confident, provided our faith is tempered with holy fear. To believe that Jesus Christ is the first fruits from the dead. And then I would argue that he's revealed himself to the world in such a way that we can have that hope because he's done this, you and I will also do it. That's the Christian message, is it not? That's what you and I are hanging out for. That's, I'm assuming, while you're here. That's what Christians are. It all comes to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the hope. And if Jesus has done this, if he's the only one in all of human history that has been able to accomplish this, and he is giving you the promise that if you look up, that if you look through, that you look in hope, he will restore you, right? That's the, that's the things in Scripture about this death has no sting, or when we grieve in this life, we don't grieve as those who are with what? Out any hope. You and I are unique because of what we're looking to and what we actually see. That's why we can be called to be thankful in all things, even in the hard things. Thankful to God, because he's given us even the smallest insight that we can hang on to of divine truth. Listen, and that's not to disparage any you know, worldly knowledge that you have, to, that you've learned over the years. You need those things. We need that. It's not this battle between those things. But what did the Apostle Paul say? He was headed to the top of his society. He's a smart guy. But he, all of those things, all his career path that he was on before he knew Christ, everything that he had in his mind, the sharp mind that God gave him, he didn't just discount that and just throw it out. He turned it and did what? Used it for the glory of God. I count all things but loss for the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what he said. Even just knowing Christ, I mean, it's so hard in our culture, and not just in ours, but typically in ours, it is so difficult in ours to say, Jesus is all you need, the discernment of who he is, it's preferable to any human knowledge that you can have in the sciences or any other place. Why? Because it depends on where you're looking. I want to pursue that because 
I can have a great you know, career, great this, great that. Awesome. But there's an order. Remember the order? Seek my kingdom what? First, then all these things will be added to you. Why? Deuteronomy 8. God's the one who's supplying your wealth, not you. He's given you the capability and you the hands, the mind, or whatever it is that you enjoy doing to pursue. And guess what? In this country, you can get paid a lot of money for a lot of things, right? I fell asleep to a guy who won a golf match. $18 million for playing golf. Are you kidding me? <laughs> In a weekend? Good on you. Right? But do you love the Lord more? Do you have the hope that will save your soul? Knowing that who cares if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? See, if the light of Christ has begun to shine on you, rejoice and beg God that your path will shine brighter and brighter until the perfect day in Christ comes. When you see him as he is, look up, look through, look in hope in your salvation. Fight the good fight of faith and light up the world that's dripping in darkness. Hey, Jesus, thank you for your goodness and your grace in this piece of history that Mark has given us to a man that we will one day, I'm sure, meet who was restored by you. And Father, for the disciples who were there watching, God, I pray that you would deal with us gently as, as you dealt with them. The means in which you've given us the light, but yet we are still, we still struggle. We still fall. We still don't understand completely we still look and push our desires on the inside, our rights, our offenses, as opposed to enduring those for Christ's sake. Father, I pray that you touch us with your spirit today. God, I ask that you would continually pour out the power that you've already given to remember the promises of your word, that you are not far away, that you never leave or forsake, that you're constantly right there, ready to touch the sinner who wants to come home. God, I pray if there is anyone here today who has not been touched by you, do it now. Heal them of their hard heart crash through and break it to bits only to restore it and give them a new one. Father, for those who know you, bring us to discernment to understand the times in which we live, to be able to speak a word to those where we live, work, and play, that they too would come and know salvation that only comes from looking up. 